0: Listening Dog Media DJ Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How To DJ How To DJ It's not so much the act, it's the song
1: So it really comes down to the song So it could be anyone and you hear that track and you go Wow, I really really love love that that track track. The thing about music where it can just give you goosebumps That, that's one of my favourite things things to play. play
0: Being a radio on DJ
1: was 10 times better than that dream becoming true. It was just ridiculous, I couldn't believe it.
0: A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of most stuff DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, one of the founders of Big Beat.
1: The actual, like the social especially, the Chemical Brothers, myself, Richard it's actually had sort of styles, and that's an important thing. A remixer. Especially with analogue, yeah. I do love making things disorientating. Is something that's almost unique to music, I think.
0: A venue owner.
1: Everyone's got to have more strings in the bow. What's been great is coming back in the last year. The hospitality thing went to such an extreme that I, I, I converted a derelict farm.
0: John Carter, welcome to How To DJ.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: John, before heading into the box of questions here, was there always music in your household
1: as a kid? Yeah, terrible music you wouldn't touch with a barge pole. But the radio, the radio supplied inspiration. Yeah, I guess the closest you could come to acceptable was Elton John and the Carpenters, but my dad had a chronically bad record collection, so no, no, (laughs) I was kind of something that just, yeah, came to me first, really.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, just on the outskirts of London. About 40 feet into Essex, which is, um, breakbeat territory.
0: So are you an Essex boy?
1: By 40 feet, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah. as yeah. you cross over that line.
0: There's a, a box of 45 questions, but I'm only going to ask you to answer five from the box. I want to talk about you first uh, before we get to those questions and about how then did you get into music?
1: I got into music, um... When I was at school, there was uh, friends that had a sort of band thing, but there was one guy who was quite. He was really good with guitar and effects and loops and things like that. wasn't particularly fond of the band. So I got myself a guitar, echo pedal, and I like the more weird ways of making sounds with it, like with a Marshall amp, kicking it, because it's got a reverb in it and making all kinds of weird sounds. And back in the days of analog pedal delays, getting really kind of far out there, squelching noises. And then Stone Roses and Scream of Delica come along, painting a whole new palette for music, and at the same time Acid House kicking in, the whole party scene. I went to try and go to university, and I hated it so much, I could go into details, but I went for about an hour, I stayed there and started doing sound systems, doing parties acid house, kind of early days of prodigy kind of stuff was out then. And, and those kind of things really interested me. And we lived in a house that used to be an old people's home. So there's quite a lot of us. And you could throw mad parties in there, with smoke machines and strobes and, and took it from there. Worked in a reggae studio, started getting into the people management side of music. You know, when you've got 12 people crammed into a shed studio and they're all kind of manic. Or I was doing bands as well. And so you've got a live situation and all kinds of different things. Ties in with venues, I guess, later on in life where you've got a whole bunch of different experiences you've got to get a handle on not just uh, the influence of music and so it came from multiple directions first off it's just absolute love of music and that was from much younger from the jam and stuff like that really into sort of more 60s stuff and psychedelic and then yeah acid house and and delica, particularly just seemed to you know and weather all remixes and everything andrew touched really <laughs> Yeah, seemed to have a foot in both both camps.
0: What do you count as your first ever DJ gig?
1: First ever DJ gig. Probably that one with the strobes and the and the smoke machine filling um what was this gigantic old people's home that we then sort of took over. Basically, yeah, I learned to DJ very quickly from the we borrowed the decks. My mate was the manager of the university bar. I didn't go to the university but certainly borrowed his decks and systems and stuff like that i remember him getting particularly unhappy when he <laughs> i go so this mix in then dave how do you do it he goes oh john you'll take ages to learn i go, well, yeah indulge me show us he goes well you have to you've got had last train to transcentral on one side he's got something else on the other She's going, so you, well, you, have to, you have to sort of get in the tongue, you have to count your bars, and it's without even having it through the set, it went, like this, you mean? And, and it was in time. Obviously, it's, it takes five minutes, but he, he was, he went, you bastard. It's, if you can hear two rhythms in your head, that's that's the key thing, and so I got I got very very quickly into it. I was buying loads of records, but he, that was the first time I was mucking around with two decks, and then very quickly started throwing parties using Dave's two decks, with Dave totally ashamed and not going near them because <laughs> he still had a lot to learn. But it's a, it's an innate thing in a lot of people, I think. Anyone who's not used sync buttons will tell you the same thing. You just have to understand two rhythms in your head at the same time.
0: What do you remember about that first night in the old people's home?
1: There was a lot of smoke, a lot of smoke machine, a lot of strobes. And, but yeah, we put sound systems in quite a lot of rooms. And I mean, this was what, 1989? That was, it was brilliant. I mean, we we just tried to make it almost impossible to see. So... I remember a lot of XL records from that period. Dave definitely played Last Train to Transcentral. I know he squeezed that in. And, yeah, just trying to make it as kind of disorientating as possible. And I think we succeeded. Yeah, it was a, a really nice early taste.
0: Was that a kind of philosophy that you carried on?
1: Yes, definitely. Still do. I've recorded a lot of new stuff recently. Yeah, especially with analogue gear. Yeah. I do love making things disorientating is something that's almost unique to music, I think. Um, because you're not being led in by a visual. If you're If you're disorientating someone with pure sound, I think it's, yeah, it can take you somewhere. And if you do it in a way that... You're kind of controlling it. I know I use that phrase, but you can kind of journey people in a way. And um, a lot of that ties in with healing music and certain frequencies. There's all kinds of things you can do with frequencies that actually make you feel certain things. And similarly, you can um, hide those in there and sort of reorientate people. There's so much you can do with audio, I think, because it's just so completely subjective it's a feeling more than any other sense i think
0: how john did those early parties take you to an, a national stage give you such a big platform in the in the 90s
1: well, it was a while ago now i stayed down in southampton which is where i was meant to go to university but but didn't chose not to and learned I I just worked instead building up equipment, The keyboard, old oh, S ten rolling S ten, four seconds of sample time, which is handy because then you you could just you go down an octave and you've got the beat playing quite slowly, which is, you know, belyric and you can make a lot more out of four seconds. And just producing and producing more and more stuff. Just working, working away at building up more kit, and then I moved back to London, carrying on with people I had a band with, and then sending out tapes the old classic way, what you do. But also, a sort of three pronged attack really. The the the, the tape one <laughs> didn't really attack that much. The more I produced, the more. I found I could do it quite fast, which was an important thing because drum and bass was coming up around that time. I would just go in, you just got to have balls, just go in and introduce yourself to people. So I ended up working for two drum and bass labels, engineering, because I could, I could get an Akai as an old sampler, classic. I could fly my way around it because back then, I don't know, you know, the screens on all your machines are about this big. And you have to know stuff and be fast, especially with drum and bass. Then, you know, people are coming in and got one day in the studio, you got 24 hours. That sort of sped up my production process further, making my own stuff as well. I remember looking at brute records. I think certainly anyway, they always had those free techno tracks and then one down tempo track on this label. I was living living in Labrick Grove, West London, and it had um, a phone number on it, so I phone the phone number, and I say, look, I've got some down-tempo stuff if you're interested in something for a fourth track, and, uh, and he goes, well, send it in on a tape, and I heard, I heard him click his cassette deck, and I saw the, the phone number, and I went, that's just around the corner from my house, mate, so I'll just come around now. <laughs> he goes, what? I go, your phone code, that's just around the corner from the flat I live in, I'll come around now. And he laughed. He went, all right, yeah, come around then. So um, I met this guy, basically forcing your way into someone's house by freaking them out, saying I'm just around the corner. And he said, well, look, it's not for us, but go and see this guy, Mark Jones. And that was Wall of Sound. He's starting up a label and he might be interested in some of the stuff you've got here. And so I left him, went down to Wandsworth, met Mark Jones and Mark Lesnar, who were sole trader. They were distributing records at the time. And just started, they released Basement Jack's first stuff, give them enough dope compilations with all the things that were on there. And, yeah, he said, get down to this club on a Sunday night at the Albany Pub in Great Portland Street. And that was the Heavenly Social. And so I used to go down there. There's a a few gaps I won't fill in, but certainly... Made a lot of friends and acquaintances, made myself known there. And yeah, by the end of that that run that summer at the Albany and some of the after parties back in Lebrick Grove and stuff and then and sort of running up the road, getting records and then chucking records on at these after parties and then playing more stuff to Jeff Barrett from Heavenly, all very, very quickly suddenly had all the sound, Heavenly, lining up to put things out and also involved with DJing at their parties. So it was very, very quick. So that's where the sort of innate sense of hearing two beats, putting weird stuff together, you know, dance all with Led Zeppelin, with Acid House, but making it work. Yeah, that's something that maybe is a little harder to understand in these days, not being an old old man about this, but I was just thinking about this before it started with the whole sync button thing and pre-preparing everything in Ableton, everything's going to fit, but back then it's like, it goes at this speed and it can go faster or slower, making all these different things blend together was, you had to understand it more, get your head around inside stuff rather than, you know, they'll go together if you click all these points and ram that there. Not knocking it. Yeah, that's, I think the eclecticism of it all and the disorientation of it all. I got offered a, a residency for when the social restarted on the back of the productions, as well as these crazy after parties and all the wall of sound parties as well. And then there was obviously, at that time, a whole world was only just starting to get its head around dance music and club culture, rave culture. Really hard to imagine that now. But there really was what we call territories. You know, Brazil, just, you know, into their own music. The whole thing now is global. And you always thought, what would it be like when it's all global? and People have grown up and it are always there. But each territory was always just, it, was, it didn't go, it spread around the world. And it was great because at that time, everyone's focusing on the UK and the press there. And it was at that time that there was as it was growing, more attention on it. And that's how it very, very quickly went from, yeah, throwing ragga records together with Led Zeppelin, with oh, a higher state of consciousness, in fact, even out then, to suddenly being asked to go and take this weird stuff around the world. So it was, it was really fast. I remember it being really, really quick.
0: Who else was around at the Heavenly Social? What other DJs were we playing with?
1: Heavenly Social had um, Tom and Ed, who were the Dust Brothers at the time, Chemical Brothers now, and they'd always headline. Richard Fearless and myself were the other two residents. Weatherall would be playing a lot, the Turnmills one. Andrew was there a lot, because obviously he could put, turn his hand to so many styles. The original Albany one, they'd always be a guest, anything kind of left field so you know Bobby Gillespie did Bobby get on the decks I can't remember but I remember the last one had Tricky as the guest DJ and uh wow he turned up with one record and it was a Tigers of Pantang album and just sort of going through the album like this and um we must have really been refreshed everyone there because somehow it worked some 80s hair metal LP that that's as a maverick spirit right there
0: can you put into words the way that your life was then at the heavenly social and outside of it i mean were you out all the time was it a feel-good time
1: yeah out all the time it was it was feel good there were great nights and then you know then some really iconic nights were starting to formulate like metal heads be there every sunday And when the first sort of DJ and it takes a while before you're suddenly going around the world or whatever. And he said, always you back from metal heads at the blue note on Sunday, the blue note nights, even before then, before the blue note, when it's called the bass clef, Just going out. Yeah. Going out so much. There's so much interesting, different stuff, things you just really wanted to hear and you're young and you're just absorbing all this culture, all this different type of music, meeting all these people and, And the whole going outside of it as well. So it was a combined pleasure because you're going out and you're really enjoying yourself, you're you're working and you're learning, you're absorbing and you think you might be having people being quite standoffish and stuff like that, but it wasn't. It was a very welcoming culture and there's a lot of lovely people involved and, yeah, it it was out a lot. Very rare that you'd find you, you think, thinking back now, you no, know, you'd take every opportunity just to go out and get into anywhere you could and listen.
0: What was the peak, would you say, of, of that time?
1: Well, because when, when you say it is like um founder of big beat, I guess that's the sort of uh, back then you could sort of segment things into scenes, and yeah, so, it, so it comes from a sort of resurgence of breakbeats those, the actual, of like the social especially. The Chemical Brothers, myself, Richard Fearless actually had sort of styles, and that's an important thing. It's eclectic, but you're, it's not just about having a big breakbeat, a guitar riff and stuff like that. And when that style of, just as it was getting really big is when it's like, right, I don't really want much to do with this anymore. And so I can tell you, it was when norman remixed renegade master and i remember playing that and it's like okay that's it that that is that's a defined style that is that track that's it i'm not saying it's the best one or anything but it's like at that point it's like that is it that is now formula and that's when you start to go, right? Let's go experimenting more with like harder electro and acid house things and bringing house more back into it for me. Things went up really, but from that early, early stage, which was what people call Big Beat or Heavenly Social or Term mills and that, yeah, I'd say for that stage up till Norman remixed Renegade Master. And then after that, there were there was still stuff to come, but that's when you started hearing some really terrible stuff hitting the charts and things like that. I think I think that's what paints the broad, you know, gives the broad strokes that um, people kind of have a, an aversion to that, the, you know, the name Big Beat or the memories of it. It's actually the more comical stuff that came after that. There was actually quite an experimental time. Um, and there were a lot of formulaic people. So it's before that is when you just want to get off the ship and then swim to a different destination.
0: What happened then, would you say, let's uh, use Renegade Master as a, a market in the sand. How did your life change yeah. after that? What was life like after that?
1: There was things I was putting my hands to that was just getting, I get you look back and you don't think so much at the time. It was, I think doing the Heavenly Social Mix CD, that seemed to get a lot of attention. That then went to, a, so I did an Essential Mix. And then there's some key residencies, bugged out. And a lot of people sort of went out on a limb, maybe, to sort of book us. And then I just suddenly got residencies there, bugged out. Uh, Cream, the annex room in Cream, bugged out in Cream as well. And in Sankeys. yeah, just being out there, just being a bit fearless and reckless, which is, I feel it's got its name. But the, yeah, the whole idea of just, Trying to get people when you you know you got a really good one, get people in your hand by playing in a way where you just they don't know what to expect. But you got a following of people that knew they could get something they'd get something good. And I had a real policy of even if I was doing two, three gigs in a night, only two or three tunes would you play the same ones at each gig. No one's got any idea that you've played completely different sets but you've got to keep yourself really energised. And so, you know, you just, you're not going out and just knocking out the same thing, do it again and the same thing. And so that that led it just always onwards, really, for me. And the 4-4, four, four, you know, there's still so much. It, it, it doesn't just have to have a removal of doof, 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 doof. You know, there's so many things in electro and breakbeat where... You know, if you put a change, just change where the kick drum is. It's house, so it's not a massive. I think tempo is a bigger, a bigger thing. So, yeah, it went. It went from basically it was always about having down tempo at the start of your box and drum and bass at the back and make your way through it smoothly with people not realising until, and that takes the energy up, up and up and up and up. Yeah, that was the remit really. So and it just yeah kept going. For, for many years, DJ. Come to DJ.
0: It kept going until you had severe tinnitus, didn't you?
1: So I kept going after that and still producing. I think there was a sea change coming as well, and that was that 2004. So I've been going for 10 years at that point, like really, well, known for doing it. Yeah, just slowed it down a bit after that, slowed it down, had other sort of things going on, like you say, with venues and yeah, yeah, that was, that was pretty grim. That first, first three months, if anyone gets it and they know they've got it, and it's constant, always reach out to someone else because they can talk you through. It is a tough one. How
0: was it and how is it, Chuck?
1: It's, it's just something that eventually you tune out. <laughs> but it's there all the time. You just, your brain learns to tune things out and that's, that's what you just have to uh, know. So I, we still, I still get calls from people that have got it and, and you tell them, a sort of pay it forward kind of way, because I know Rocky from Express 2, he called me and just said, you know, you will get used to it. It's really hard that first three months but then one day because every morning you're waking up and it's like oh it's another day ah! and then one day you wake up and it's like oh. shrug your shoulders and that's your brain's kind of tuned it out it's not at the forefront of your thinking anymore when i lived in the countryside for a bit and the background noise completely dropped having previously lived in london i had to do it all again so, and it took another three months Cause and that was again it was like um man this is a nightmare and so yeah it's twice i've had to deal with it in a way tune it out twice it's just look after your ears people there's very good products out there and filters i it's definitely touring with the prodigy that was one of them yeah yeah the prodigy their sound system would be the monitors for when you're the tour dj and that was definitely part of it. I went to the doctors and said, it's gone up overnight. It's absolutely game- It doesn't go up overnight. Yes, it, it has. But it doesn't. Well, it has. And it never came down. So, um, yeah.
0: Was it the reason why you started to DJ less and got into owning venues or had you lost interest in DJ? What's the story with buying the venues?
1: Multiple things, really. There was 2004... I definitely took a step back and then there's more people coming in and then there's more technology coming in. We all know the impact of technology and it became a lot easier to access creation of music and there's, you know, people coming up and younger people coming up. So there's, if you look back at the days, who's in the top 100 or who's on flyers and stuff like that, and there's a lot more as far as, fewer names compared to now. So it spread out and there was more people coming in. So there's all many kind of things that around that same time that made it kind of more of a segue from just DJing to sort of DJing to working with the venues, the pubs, the Lock Tavern especially, very music based in the embassy. And you know DJ bars were new then. That's Cause you had to have a setup and a space for it and the decks and people had to have records and now in a similar way you can't imagine a bar without some kind of setup for playing music but it was the social in portland street in london connected to heavenly social and the embassy bar in essex road which i lived next door to and so i met them when it was being done up and it took That went off from about 2000. So that that sort of segued into doing venues and programming nights. And similarly, that was the death of the super clubs overnight, almost after the millennium New Year's Eve, where everyone took the mickey with, with prices, but everyone, you know, it cost a lot to put them on, but I think that's where everyone finally went. I don't really want to have to pay two, three hundred quid for a night out and someone looking down my bra or whatever and this kind of stuff. And I think things went back to a more grassroots level very quickly in the early 2000s, which was great because the Locked Avenue was a very grassroots kind of thing. A lot of people through through people we know come and do their um, warm up for tours and things like that. Um, you know, James Murphy would be testing stuff out there. You've got, you know, even you know, Caribou. I remember seeing Caribou uh, doing Sun there and, and it went on for, for years. So that sort of segued into doing venues and, and then sort of working more in hospitality. I didn't lose interest. There was, you just got to think forwards. It's not like, right, international DJ going around the world, going to last forever. I'm just smarter than that. Everyone's got to have more strings in the bow. What's been great is coming back in the last year. The hospitality thing went to such an extreme that I I, I converted a derelict farm in the countryside into a retreat venue. Started four days after having twins, and that was full on. I've moved on from that now as well and got back into production again in a way that Feels so much much more enjoyable than the last days of when I was doing it before. And so there was a ten year gap, and during that time I was working so hard. When you convert derelict arms, it's a hell of a job, and you're just so far away from where you, where you were with music. And I remember you'd play things that you've made, and you'd go. You'd, say to, you'd ask yourself the same question that other people go, like, you know, listening to something you've done, going, where did you start with something like that? How did you, how'd you, how'd you do it? And you're asking yourself, how the hell did you do that? Where did you start? What's going through your head? Ten years away from it, and it and it felt, it all sounds a bit romantic and stuff, it felt like I'd sort of betrayed this thing that's just so inspirational to me. I had a bit of a spiritual moment, set the decks up just over there, looking out, over that and I had the film track for Countryman playing and I heard um a percussion loop but it leapt out of me turns out it's not just percussion there's all this slight guitar and stuff and I was like I wheeled it back and and then right okay just chucked the wire into the side of the computer looped it and it's the first time I suddenly started hearing music all around something and just it came back just like then. I was talking to a friend of mine, telling him about this experience, and he just said, we'll come down to the studio in a kind of more orderly fashion. And we were all a few years older. And on a Sunday afternoon, I'd go up to London. And it turned out it was, it was right next to where I'd lived for 30 years. Sitting in the studio with Terry Farley and Ian Snowball, brilliant drummer and percussionist. And I'd known him through down therapies and things like that, and yeah, just just doing this on a sort of regular basis. And I got all my old analog stuff out and was really investigating it a lot more. Now there was no pressure. It was because you're just you're just massing equipment when you're younger and you're just experimenting so much. And this is more about getting into the actual synthesis as well of of analog stuff i've got an album pretty much done and a whole side project that's you can't really call it ambient but it's it's more beatless but then again there's but that and yeah that's along the disorientating side there's stuff that's come out there's more club bangers and it's yeah it's come full circle really but it's yeah i just really want to concentrate on um investigating making new styles of music game as well as things that make people dance
0: (laughs) right it's time to get into the box of questions john the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here so all the questions are on 45 steves i'll dip into the box and pull one out when you say when
1: is your hand in the box chris
0: it's in the box john when your first question is which do you prefer to play clubs or festivals?
1: At this stage in my life, festivals, definitely. Definitely because there's going to be people there. People don't necessarily need to know who you are. They can just hear a sound and you can, you can be playing. It's like I'm doing three gigs at Glastonbury, where I'm unlikely to get three big gigs in clubs now. But back in the day, very hard to pick i prefer a sweaty basement with sweat literally dripping off the ceilings and just a basic light and people just there so yeah that really tight energy but now festivals because i can go on i've not from a commercial point of view i've not had to be someone who's a name that's going to sell loads of tickets, but they know that they can put me up the rave tree just before midnight in the Greenpeace field. And it'll absolutely go off, which is, it's nice. It's like an anonymity kind of thing. So yeah, back in the day clubs, these days festivals.
0: All right. Good answer. Back to the box for your second question. John, say when?
1: Get your hand in there. When?
0: Do you have one single song with a very special memory attached?
1: A lot. I guess when I was, I've still got loads of vinyl here. i got rid of loads. There's Love Story, Tim Deluxe remix by Leo and Bushwacker. It's, right, big tune at the time. And you're looking at it and go, should I just get rid of that? And it's like, no, I can't. I can't. I might never play it again. But I was live on Radio One at the Berlin Love Parade. That record was big at the time, and that remix just come out. Pete Tong's there as the decks, but the whole massive trio truck thing's bouncing anyway. And I dropped that, and it's live on Radio One from Berlin, put that on, and then the needle. It just went absolutely insane. And the needle wasn't, just it was just in the air. And so I just, I just sort of got it with my chin, put my arms underneath the decks, and, well, the deck, and just like put it back to the start with my chin, live on Radio 1, and just holding it like this. And so it's playing, and the whole thing's going insane. Tongue's going, I've just never seen anything like this in my life. And I look around, and there's Dave Beer, standing on a pole on this thing completely naked holding nuts so yeah that's got a memory to it that one dave beer from back to basics
0: that question will never have a better answer than that back into the box for question three
1: <laughs> okay
0: your third question for the box John. what do you wish you'd never done
1: well I know what first comes to mind but I won't say yeah one thing and I'd rather not say too personal to someone that
0: uh, might also be the best answer to that question we'll ever have (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah all right let's move on Uh, (laughs) question four coming up okay how much of what you do is performance
1: Interesting. That's I'd say minimal. I'm very much obviously it's it's different these days. Like up in the rave tree in Glastonbury, you are literally up in this three stories highest, so no one can see you. Then I know that Norman has said earlier in his days, you know, he when he does all this and he's going, I got that from John Carter. It's like, well, it's kind of just a feeling that the when you got eyes on you, because it wasn't like that when it all started. People didn't have eyes on the DJs and stuff. But when you have, and say you've really effed up with something, I remember there was a there was a festival. It wasn't actually my, but it was it was an Arm of Van Helden and you know, I, I must have just it must have just got so cluggy or something that it, the needle was just skipping across it. And I think it happened a few times before, and people were going uh, what? And you just like go right, okay, this didn't happen again. It's going, oh, oh sorry, right. and just pick it up, just smash it in a million pieces. It's going, right, no, it and it's like, you win people back round that way. So it's a mixture really, it's more about, it's about music and really sort of people, you're getting a sort of performance because they know they're going to get their heads twisted a little, or in terms of, you know, from a sonic level, but on a visual level, yeah, just, You've got to be prepared to sort of do something if if something goes wrong. You've got to be a bit of a showman just to pull yourself out of a hole. Even if it's just like, man, I messed up. But um, yeah, yeah, there's got to be a bit of character in there. But it is it is about about music.
0: All right, so one final question from the box then. Say when?
1: Rummage around, getting deep. This thing gets deep. There you go, that one.
0: All right, your final question. You might need to think about this. Can you say how being a DJ makes you feel in one sentence?
1: Exceedingly lucky situation to be in is when you can take music you adore and put it together in certain ways, where other people may not know, doesn't matter who you are, but other people appreciate it and start coming together, which I've seen at festivals, just hearing something, and then a crowd is just suddenly formed. Irrespective of whoever is playing, is one of the most wonderful feelings in the world. An absolute joy to be able to do that still. And that feeling when you just see a crowd come out of nowhere just from the sound, you just feel very blessed to have been in that position. That's, that's how I feel about it at the moment.
0: John, I have got one last question for you. It's the end of the world and you've got to play the, the last three records on earth. What would they be?
1: Donna Summer, I Feel Love. Rock Steady by the Marvels. It's a wonderful life by Sparkle Horse.
0: John Carter, thank you so much. And that was How to DJ
1: to
0: DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us
1: wherever you get your podcast from.